Welcome to Imagining the Future of Theological Education, a conversation bringing together diverse perspectives on theological education in America today. This podcast series is coming to you from Christian Theological Seminary and with support from the Henry Luce Foundation. I'm Dr. David Malott, President of Christian Theological Seminary, and my co-host is Dr. Deborah Mullen, Leadership Education Consultant and Professor Emerita at Columbia Theological Seminary. In a series of conversations, Deb and I are speaking with some of the folks who were part of a grant study group and other leaders who are informing the future of theological education. We are talking with faculty members, seminary administrators, as well as researchers and representatives of foundations as we explore provocative questions related to scholarship, leadership, and theological education. And while our conversation will span a vast range of topics, one singular thread will run through every episode, imagining what the future of theological education could and should look like. So welcome to the conversation. Thanks, David. Thanks to all of our listeners and to our presenters, our guests, our friends. We thought we'd start with a little backstory on how this podcast came to be. We want to say thanks again for the grant we received from the Henry Luce Foundation in 2017, in which David and I began hosting a series of consultations across the country on the current and future direction in theological education. It was actually during these conversations and research that it became clear that while our institutions face diverse issues, they share a common challenge to think strategically and imaginatively about the future, given the landscape of theological education today. So as the grant wrapped up, we were inspired to widen the conversation in order to share insights we gleaned with others involved in theological education and to keep talking about how our work is evolving. Our guests today are the Reverend Matthew Wesley Williams, President of Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, and formerly with the Forum for Theological Exploration in Atlanta, and Dr. Teresa Delgado, Professor of Religion and Ethics at Iona College and Chair of the Religious Studies Department. She's also the Program Director of Peace and Justice Studies at Iona. Today we'll be discussing the ways in which theological educational institutions are and should be engaging the needs of African-American and Latinx students and the changes that still need to be made if we want our programs and institutions to be equitable, diverse, and inclusive. So let's get into the questions. This first one is kind of a general question, and it would be really interesting actually to hear from both of you. What keeps you up at night? when you think about how well or not theological education is meeting the demands for equity, diversity, and inclusion in predominantly white institutions. The second part of that, just so that our listeners will have a sense of where we're going, is would you reflect on the unique role of HBCUs and HBTIs, historically Black colleges, universities, and theological institutions, in preparing leaders for diverse communities? If I could begin, first, thank you both, David, Deb, for this invitation. It's wonderful to be with you and with my good friend, Matthew, as well, for this conversation. I'd like to address the first question of what keeps me up at night around theological education. And I have to say that I think about the students who are going through various programs, the students who have gone through various programs, and the angst 
and the anxiety and the trauma that those students have endured and are enduring. And often that trauma is actually inflicted by the institutions themselves. And that worries me because as much as we're all wounded healers in various ways and within the field of theology, it worries me that it is just too much to bear. Dr. Mullen, thank you for that question. And I want to echo my good, dear friend, Dr. Teresa Delgado's sentiments. And I'm just very grateful to be in this conversation with her and with you. So the answer to the first question for me is very much tied to the answer to the second. And as a way of entering that, I'll echo what Teresa shared, which is that she and I have been comrades in doing much of the trauma triage that has been necessary to see students through these programs at the master's and the doctoral level. Even in environments where you have a cluster of faculty of color, the institutions themselves have been designed in ways that are, to put it quite mildly, inhospitable to Black bodies and intend to alienate the kind of ways of being and knowing from which these students come. And in these kinds of environments, students have to really fight for the legitimacy of their lineages, their heritages, their cultures, their theological perspectives. And the overt and and more subtle forms of trauma that these students undergo then make them less available to the communities that they got into this work for in the first place and require a kind of detoxification on the other side of these processes in predominantly white institutions. So that, for the time that we've been doing this work, has kept me up. The answer to the second question about the significance of historically Black theological schools, I'm going to echo the words of John Sylvanus Wilson, former president of Morehouse College, who said that Morehouse, there was a crown above my head to which I was encouraged to rise to fit. He said, when I was in an Ivy League institution, there was a question mark above my head questioning whether I belong there. And I spent my energy trying to prove myself that I belong there. So without the added burden of trying to prove one's legitimacy and belonging, one of the things that historically Black theological schools do is it builds a theological education, designs a theological education for the very communities from which Black and Brown folk come. Carter G. Woodson in 1933 in The Miseducation of the Negro talked about theological miseducation, right? And he said, In schools of theology, Negroes are taught the interpretation of the Bible, worked out by those who have justified segregation and winked at economic debasement of the Negro, sometimes almost to the point of starvation. And deriving their sense of right from this teaching, graduates of such schools have no messages to grip and to serve the people from whom they've been ill-trained to serve, right? So In a real sense, not only do we come through these institutions traumatized, but we come ill-equipped to go back and serve our people. Historically, Black theological institutions have a long heritage of preparing people to serve the communities that they have been called to serve and doing that in a way that is culturally relevant, competent, and responsive, and in some cases, making bricks without straw. If I might, both of you have said some things that require that I ask this question. You referenced Carter G. Woodson, which was swirling in my mind, miseducation of the Negro. And the observation 
I've been in theological education for 35 years, observation 25 years ago that a conscious predominantly white institution observed about its curriculum with regard to black and brown people because they listened to some of their students who were saying, you know, I can't go home with this. And so one of the observations I've made, conclusions I've drawn in terms of the strengths of HBCUs and TIs has to do with the connection they have to the communities from which they are receiving students. And that just does not exist in a way that is equally observable with predominantly white institutions. So I just wonder what you all think about that. Well, I think the question that we're dealing with here is bigger than the curriculum. It's the very design of education and theological education in particular, that when you talk about the way theological education is designed and the way the academy, the kind of values that the academy holds, it's no mistake that there's a rift between the communities from which students come and the ways in which they are trained. Truth is, theological education doesn't prepare anyone to lead, (laughs) right? That's the open secret of theological education, really, is that the value system of the academy deems the practical as a lower register within theological education and the so-called theoretical being a higher register. And it assumes this kind of demarcation between thinking and action, between theory and practice, which is just part of the warp and woof of the Western intellectual tradition. So those of us who come from a a different kind of epistemological tradition then come into an alien space that requires us to violently split ourselves, right? Head from heart, you know, mind from body, spirit from flesh, and engage in these kinds of discourses that are disconnected from these environments that we come from. So in many ways, historically, Black theological schools have maintained that connection in spite of the academy. And that's not something that can be solved at the level of the curriculum or at the level of the faculty. It has to be solved at the level of institutional design and values, which is too often tied to the kind of hierarchies and reward systems of the guild that then get reinforced at the level of the institution. Matthew, can you provide maybe an example of something that would look different in a historically Black theological institution at this very point? Because I think a lot of people need to understand concretely what that might look like. Yeah. So it goes to the question of where is knowledge generated, from whom, and for what purpose, right? And this is something that we're working on at ITC, that our mission has to do with the cultivation of leaders who practice liberating and transforming spirituality, right, to become leaders in the local and global communities. For us, we've interpreted that mission as cultivating a new generation of prophetic problem solvers. So what that looks like is that the process of learning is not the process of mastering a body of knowledge. It's the process of being able to apply critical inquiry to the development and design of solutions that tie that critical inquiry to the flesh and blood realities of everyday people and to the communities from which we come, right? So, for example, this is driven by a core question, which is, what are the pillars of Black liberation? What's required? If a Black community is to be sovereign, is to be free, is to be liberated, what are some of those core pillars? One of them has to do with what Fannie Lou Hamer said some time ago. She said, if you can feed yourself and your family, 
Nobody can push you around, right? So food security becomes one of those kind of leverage points within the life of a community. And it's a theological leverage point within a community that solves a number of problems at one time, right? So what happens when you leverage the positioning, the property, and the theological resources of a congregation to address the issue of food security? Who are the experts there? Where is that knowledge generated? It's certainly not generated by anybody who came through a theological program and a PhD, right? It could be that a farmer is the person who brings the kind of expertise, who is a professor of record, right, in that kind of a program. It could be that a local agroecologist in the urban environment is the person who pairs with somebody who brings a critical theological lens, and they become kind of a team teaching group around that. But then the classroom is no longer the sole space for learning, but it's a staging ground in which students engage in learning laboratories in multiple spaces that might include a farm, right? That might include a local food system, but it's not limited to the classroom. So it involves us kind of reimagining how we understand our mission and how we understand the ultimate impact of what our educational aim is designed to meet. If I could jump in there and just, you know, the thing that came to mind as you were asking the question, Deb, and then and Matthew, as you were answering, I, I mean, I did think about, you know, Willie James Jennings, The Christian Imagination. And one of the things that he's had said in that book that has always kind of stuck with me is that whiteness is not never a surprise. It's a specified result of structural thought. And in many ways, the structural thought that exists within the theological academy is one that both values and then preserves and perpetuates white supremacy. It is a harsh indictment, but it is a truthful one. And I have to tell you that I'm really not interested. I don't think that I was ever interested in it, but now I'm that much more conscious of not being interested in perpetuating white supremacy within theological spaces or any spaces. And what I think then needs to happen, and I haven't had the benefit of coming through a historically black college or university, but what I've observed in those spaces is that there is already the recognition and the validation that the local histories of real people are the primary source of knowledge. That's really the central theme of what decoloniality is trying to do, which is to position our local histories, as Matthew described, what, what does our community need? How can we give voice to that? How can we advocate and be part of a reimagining so people can thrive? And that becomes the locus of theological thought and action. Not that the locus of theological thought and action happens in some kind of abstract realm and then gets applied to the places that are believed to need it, but it really comes the other way around. And it's it's about privileging those local histories. What's frustrating to me over these years is that even though representation within predominantly white institutions matter, I'm not going to say that that's not important, but that can't happen alone because then all that that does is black bodies, brown bodies in these white supremacist spaces then become the, the, I've checked the box, 
that we've, we're doing our work in terms of equity and inclusion without interrogating and challenging the structures themselves for which whiteness is never a surprise. Your comments remind me again about the larger challenge that is pervasive in not only theological institutions, but as Matthew was pointing to the wider, not pedagogy and education itself, but I would say even how we understand Christianity itself. So, Teresa, when you're talking about learning something and then applying it to the local context, whatever that is that people are learning, part of the thing that I think is hard for many people to understand is the narrative of Christianity itself that's being promoted pretty aggressively is problematic right from the start. So the question is, how do we interrogate that in a way that's constructive and doesn't mean that Latinx and African-American students spend all their time dismantling it, but instead be able to have a conversation right from the beginning that's more appropriate, more rich, and actually more faithful. Yeah. And for me, David, that is the gift of Black theological education. I like to quote Toni Morrison, who one time in an interview, after she won the Nobel Prize for Beloved, she was asked by a journalist, do you think you'll ever write about white characters? And she smiled, and in her her wise way, she looked back at that journalist and said, you cannot understand how incredibly racist the question that is, because you assume that you're at the center of my universe. She said, what you don't realize is that with Beloved, I went to the so-called margins, claimed it as the center, and then I waited for you all to catch up with me. So what historically Black theological education does And the kinds of spaces that the Hispanic Theological Initiative and Hispanic Summer Program have done is it centers the community that's doing the inquiry. And what it does is it exposes that what was presumed to be universal in our study of Bultmann and Schleiermacher and all of these dead white European guys was also very particular. And we can appreciate them in their particularity, right? But these are not universal kind of declarations that can guide our theological thinking. We approach them having been grounded in the ways of thinking and being that are derived from the diversities of African peoples. And that includes the so-called Christian narratives that we hold, right? Especially the Christian narrative that we hold. So we don't have to spend a lot of time defending, right, and legitimizing an alternative way that we ground first in an African-centered way that then we engage others from. Yeah, seeing implicit in that, and if we're not careful, not we, but we can miss the point, which is both of you are making, is you start in a different place. But there has been such tremendous effort to domesticate Black and brown bodies into becoming, being educated into these good little subjects in order to carry on that Christian mission and in doing so have done tremendous violence. So, I mean, I've been taken to looking at some political cartoons of the turn of the 20th century and two cartoons come to mind. And I know this is a podcast. I'm going to ask folks to kind of imagine this with me, but one of them is called School Begins. And it was a political cartoon in 1899. I think the artist was Dalrymple. But if you look it up on images, you know, on the internet, 
school begins, you're going to see this panoramic view of Uncle Sam in a schoolroom with four brown bodies, little children in the front pew. It's a pew. And it's Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, and Hawaii. But if you look over to the scene on the left, there's an African-American boy cleaning the windows. In the far back on the right side, there's a Native American child with a book upside down. There's a Chinese child out the door. And there's other who look like little white children who have been properly educated. But the sign above it says something about the way that the British colonized, that they didn't necessarily have to wait for the consent of the people. So that's one. And then the second one that has I've really taken to is called The March of the Strenuous Civilization. And it was in Life magazine in 1901. And there's a parade of men as a symbol of what happens when you bring in civilization. Who's at the front of that line? A missionary. And who's at the back of the line, at the end of the line, is a traveling salesman. So the connection between and among imperialism as creating civilizations, headed off by missionaries, and the last kind of punctuation at the end, el punto, is the traveling salesman tying in the capitalist economy. To me, those two depictions tell me everything that I need to know Mm -hmm. about what the underlying purpose of education broadly and theological education in particular. And those things have not been at the service of the gospel and not at the service of our communities who are trying to live out the gospel message. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you had an opportunity to say something directly to predominantly white institutions about what they should be doing, what would you say to them? Predominantly white theological institutions. I'm pausing because I'm trying to think of something to say that doesn't use an expletive. (laughs) 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 So give me, give me just a minute. I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there. What I would say is really what I have been saying And that is, we can't assume that the categories, whether it's, you know, church history or Bible or practical theology or systematics, the ways that we have structured theological education, we have to interrogate that as having been a product and continuing to be a product of reinscribing white supremacy. Because there's a lot of defensiveness around that, of challenging that. But if we can at least get past the defensiveness around that, then perhaps we can look at the ways that theological education can really be in service to the gospel and in service to those who the gospel message is really called to be a message of life and of nourishment and salvation even. I think it all has to be undone and redone. My knee-jerk response, David? And you ask, what do you have to say to predominantly white theological institutions? My knee-jerk response was nothing. Then I thought, okay, let me figure out what that might be. And what came up was, I'll use the interpersonal to get to the institutional. So what came up was an experience I had where my colleague came up to me after there was some public display of white supremacy that made him feel guilty, came into my office kind of in a confessional way and said, you know, Matt, I'm sorry. 
And, uh, you know, I must admit, I'll never know what it is to be a black man. And I'm sitting there saying, duh, <laughs> of course, you'll never know what it means to be a black man. You're a white man. Right. But what I said to him was, I said, listen, nobody needs you to know what it's like to be a black man. I need you to know what it is to be white. Because you don't think about these things, you walk around unaware of your location in the world and how you got there. And so I think what I would say to the predominantly white institutions, to echo my dear friend Teresa, is that if these institutions are expressions in very, very different ways of a white Western intellectual tradition, which gave reaffirmation to the project of white supremacy, you have to reckon with the fact that white supremacy is a project of dispossession, exploitation, and extraction. It's not a problem of race relations. It's not a problem of inclusion. It's not a problem of us getting along. It's a project that has been intentionally designed for extraction, dispossession, and exploitation of one group for the benefit of another group. Right. And what undergirds that project is a false identity that we call whiteness that in and of itself erases lineages, heritages, cultures, histories that use Ellis Island and other kinds of portals into the American experiment as a crucible through which memory gets erased. So if that's the case, these institutions have to reckon with and understand we are expressions of this lineage. And that being the case, we've got to reckon with what does restitution and reparation look like if we are committed to the gospel message? And I'll just make reference to the gospel message. Let's take Jesus and Zacchaeus as an example. When Jesus engaged Zacchaeus about how to restore right relationship, the first thing he told Zacchaeus is, give back what you owe four times. There was reparation before there was any kind of reconciliation, right? And so any white institution that wants to make right inclusion, diversity, those are window dressing in the project of dispossession and exploitation and extraction. If you really want to do the work, you've got to reckon with the work of what does it mean to be living in this lineage and trying to make it right in service to our alignment with the gospel that we say we're trying to prepare people to lead in. This has been fascinating because we are pretty much off script. We are constructing this conversation as we go along. And I say that because it's important for us to acknowledge that as we are having this conversation, not just among the four of us, but there's this wider listenership for whom a lot of these absolutely profound ideas and lessons are very foreign. And just to pick up where Matthew left off, again, because I think it's important to say the obvious, there aren't many institutions that are going to be willing to relinquish anything, particularly when that is the only thing and the raison debt for those institutions. Yes. So when I said a little while ago, very simplistically, we have to begin in a different place, and you just enumerated all of the things that need to be taken apart, in order for something to be put back together. It leads us to a question that is important for each of these podcasts, and it has to do, and you've, you've teased it out, both of you, in many ways in threads, but I'm wondering how you construct a future. What does that look like, given the fact that, I don't care what we call it, 
institutions are not going to concede anything. Power concedes nothing. Without a demand. That's it. So where do we go from here? In our divine imagination, in our practical ways of understanding what are the musts for particularly communities of Black and Brown, but also because where communities of Black and Brown are free and allowed to be who they are, they lift the whole thing. Everybody benefits. So what does this look like in terms of theological education into the future? Because it can't look the same. Well, I mean, I've struggled with that question. Maybe it just depends on the day. So on some days, my feeling about it is, at least those of us who have become credentialized in that system and have different levels of power in that credentialized system, on on some days, I just want to say, you know, forget them. (laughs) It's not serving us. And so why are we going to use our energies to serve them? So on some days, I feel that way. On other days, I feel more of, well, if those institutions are still going to exist and they're still going to produce, then at least let's be in there to try to shift the thinking and the ways of being of at least those who are being shaped within those institutions. And then there are days when I think like, you know what? I'm just going to use it as a way to stack paper. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to run my own game. And I'm just going to use that instead of being used as a zone of extraction. I'm going to use it as a zone of extraction. Mm -hmm. So I'm being completely honest with you to say that I feel the pull of each of those things. And I don't know where I land, but if I'm really being honest, it is a struggle of, am I going to invest my body, my time? But in the meantime, going back to the original question about what keeps me up at night, I still am troubled by all of those black and brown bodies, these students who are going through this system and being traumatized and folk like myself and like Matthew are having to do that trauma triage. Yeah. So thank you, Teresa. I, I feel you. <laughs> and what I'll say is that it's important for us to remember and remind ourselves that theological institutions are not the sole sites of theological education. That's right. Right. So in many ways, the future is already here. It's just not visible to many of us who inhabit these traditional institutions because of the line of sight that these institutions allow us to have and then foreclose as well, right? So there are already alternatives in theological education that are afoot and have been for some time that the black and brown folk and others have been developing and are gaining strength that are throwing traditional institutions into a kind of, oh my God moment We have to go co-opt this, absorb this, bring this into what we're doing so that we seem to appear relevant. That's the moment we're in right now. And it it takes all kinds of manifestations, including trying to export the ineffective theological education that takes place on these shores to other shores. Right. There are all kinds of manifestations of that. But the future is already here. It's just not visible to most of us. And so I'm very interested in tracking the alternatives that already exist. Yes. And giving more energy and investment to those spaces 
that are actually aligned with the value system that helps to cultivate the kind of prophetic problem-solving leaders that I feel called to support and contribute to. That couldn't have been a more important place to begin to wrap up. It is actually the genesis of the study project that we were engaged in. And I think some of us went into that project certainly biased in that direction, that all that is theological education does not subsumed in theological institutions. That's why the question about the connection of communities is so critical. And this idea that seminary and seminal is the seedbed, you know, where are those seeds being planted and cultivating through your early analogy around agriculture and so on, Matthew. And so we find ourselves here at the end of this conversation, which is the beginning of many more conversations like this that need to take place, because we have to start in a different place. We cannot figure this out trying to rework, you know, with those same tools. We've got to start in a different place, which both of you have so eloquently helped us to envision in this conversation, which is all too brief and and ends all too quickly. But before I have these last notes, I wonder if David wants to say something. You know, one of the things is I hope that people who listen to this podcast will listen to this one in particular over several times, because I think there's been a lot of important things said here that from predominantly white institutions are going to take a minute to digest. You have to think about the significant ramifications of the comments that you've shared. I think many predominantly white institutions clearly don't understand the kind of exploitation and oppression that is happening to African-American students, to Latinx students. As a gay man, I don't think they are aware also of the violence against LGBTQ students in terms of the way in which the story of Christianity is told. And to have a mirror held up to those institutions in that way is painful. I mean, if they're listening and they're looking carefully, it's a painful picture. But I don't think if we want to imagine a future that's more faithful and more beautiful and more creative and more wise, we're going to have to do that. If we don't do that, I think then we become active oppressors. I mean, that's the sad truth is that we participate in a system of oppression that we claim to be against. So I'm really grateful for your comments here today and for your friendship and for being colleagues, such great colleagues to us. You know, it reminds us that conception is only part of the process. The birth of something new is a painful process mm-hmm. and uh, messy. And that's where we live if there's going to be new life. And so we are hopeful for all of the ways in which you point to renovation and innovation and new ways of understanding being that will lead us into a future that will be less damaging, less traumatic than the present in which we live. And so there is hope. And we thank you immensely for the richness of this conversation, Reverend Matthew Williams and Dr. Teresa Delgado, our friends, our colleagues, we thank you for joining us today. As David says, you've given us and our audience a lot to think about as we all face the future of theological education. So while this is the end of this particular pair, by no means is this conversation over. And we, in this series, have other conversations that we hope our listeners will attend to. But this one, as David said, people need to listen to more than once. And we thank you for giving us that kind of material. 
Yeah. Thank you for inviting me and us. And mm -hmm. uh, it's always a joy to be in conversation with both of you and also to my dear friend and sister Teresa. Likewise. Thank you. Go in peace. Thank you.